HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by TechServe, New York's original and still the best Apple computer, iPod, and iPhone store and repair shop. For more information, visit TechServe.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live in the back of Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, joined as usual with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez. How are you doing, Nastasha? Good. And we got Joe in the engineering room. Still no Jack. Did he die? Or is he just... Still in Puerto Rico. Still in Puerto Rico? But it's like, was he planning on being there this long? Or is he dead? Or has he just decided to move there? I think he's actually... He's back from Puerto Rico. Uh, Just hates us. Uh, You're going to have to talk with with him about that. (laughs) So, uh, So, actually, you know, today... Uh, Nastasha is like my per- this is my perfect kind of weather. It's freaking awesome. This is New York late fall at its best, uniformly overcast. There's not one ray of sun touching my disgusting white body, burning me to death. Like my nemesis, my evil nemesis, the sun. And today, today is the most fertile day of the year. Actually, what does that mean, fertile? Most people uh, have sex and get pregnant today. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, unrelated to me being so happy about the... You said it was a great day. Right? It is a great day. Yeah. So apparently it's a great day for a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of people getting busy, getting lucky mm-hmm. today. Uh, but also, Nastasha, what I, and I think maybe this is part of it, uh, although not historically, who knows, is it's, it's exactly the right temperature. If it was like three degrees colder, you could see your breath outside. And if it was three degrees warmer, the crazies would come out. <laughs> Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. there are no crazies on the street. And not to mention, for those of you that are going to visit uh, Roberta's uh, Pizzeria and hate hipsters as much as Nastasha does, there's a secret back way to Roberta's. You don't come, w- like, it, from the Williamsburg direction or from the L train direction, which is like hipster train. You come from the J train direction down from Flushing Avenue, and you pass not one hipster it's in the true. entire walk. Either that or hipsters are like crazy people, and they just don't come out when it gets a little bit nippy. 
Is it because it doesn't take that much energy to be crazy and usually crazy is just outside being crazy and so they get cold? Because like we're, when we're outside, we're moving around. You'd have to shoot me to get me to just stand outside and do nothing. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. Interesting phenomenon, the crazies. The crazies in the temperature. Anyway, beautiful fall day. Uh, call in your questions live to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. We're going to answer uh, Stan Below's question from uh, a million years ago that we keep on forgetting to answer. It's, here we go. Uh, enjoy the show on podcast only as I'm in France. A great way to gain knowledge on cooking. Good fun to listen to and uh, funky in a good way. Choice of music. Although now, you know, we have the user submitted, uh, submitted music and so we have two different styles, which I, which I thoroughly enjoy. You like that stuff, right, Stas? Mm-hmm. It's good business. Um, okay, I would appreciate your answering uh, a question. Uh, I'd like to create a small appetizer, maybe two bites. The idea is to take two medium prawns and flash cook them so they stay juicy and remove the shell and pair them with two contrasting textures. I'd like to pair one prawn with an ultralight, very brittle meringue, in quotes, and the other one with a very chewy uh, gummy bear, also in quotes. Uh, for the meringue, one egg white whip to which we add lemon juice or another flavorful water, uh, fl- water-based fl- flavor, I'm assuming, uh, until very light, then stabilize with sugar or another hydrocolloid. Of course, the hydrocolloid can be pre-mixed in the flavored water first, then put it in the oven to dry up. I could not find any indications on stabilizing egg whites in your hydrocolloid primer. Any suggestions for that? Sugar could work, but not sure of the resulting taste with prawns or a savory dish. Okay, so... Um, Let's go into that before we go to the gummy bear. So, yeah, yeah sugar makes uh, the egg white denser and gives it structure for, for when it's uh, drying up. But, as you say, sugar is sweet. So you don't want to add uh, uh, a lot of sugar. You could use a different – especially if you were going to do uh, like uh, you know, a, a cooked meringue where you cook the sugar beforehand and beat it in, cook so that it already stays cooked and then you dry it out. Uh, you could use a less sweet sugar like uh, isomalt. Uh, but it will still be somewhat sweet. There are other, you know, completely non-sweet things that have the uh, properties of sugar you could add, or you could do what I would do, which is go in an entirely different direction and use methylcellulose. If you use methylcellulose F, like Frank F fifty, right? You can take whatever flavor uh, base you want. If it doesn't have any uh, sort of substance to it, you're going to need to add some uh, bulking agent, like a maltodextrin or something uh, that is going to provide some structure to it. So you know, like if there's no protein in it, if there's no pectin, if there's no anything, you're going to need some structure. Then you add methylcell F fifty anywhere between about. Uh, 0.75 and uh, up to, but don't go over, 1% of methylcell F, uh, F like Frank, 50. And you uh, add it uh, in a blender uh, um, while it's mixing high speed so it doesn't clump up. And then if you want, if it doesn't work, you, go, you, you know, if you're worried about it not working, you can let it sit and hydrate for a while. It might not work in a milk base. You might not want to do it in milk base. But then you just whip it in a KitchenAid with a, with a, with a uh, balloon whisk. It'll, it'll whip up like egg whites. And you can pipe it into any shape you want. And then you can uh, dehydrate it in a dehydrator or in a low oven. And, um, and they're crisp. Uh, they're great. Uh, they you can make anything with them, any flavor. You could go dead savory. You could go sweet. Uh, and it doesn't have any of the residual protein stuff that's left. So it's very very light and airy. And the less methylcellulose you use, the larger the bubbles will be and the more airy it will be. But I tend to like in the area of about. 0.9% or 9 grams per uh, liter of your product. Now listen, here's the important thing. Methylcellulose has uh, trouble uh, in that if you leave a methylcellulose meringue out for a long time, it's going to absorb moisture and lose its crunch. So you're going to want to keep it 
either in a, if you're going to use a dehydrator, and I'm, I apologize, this is the one thing I know in Fahrenheit because my dehydrator only works in Fahrenheit. You want to dehydrate at around uh, 135 to 100, 135 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, but you're going to want to store it at like 112, 110, 120, in, in 20, lower, much lower than 135 because if you store it at that high temperature, if you cook it for a long time, I'm talking like a day or two, uh, to hold it, it's going to start tasting cooked. Now, it, it, you need to keep it in a dehydrator when you're getting ready for service because it's going to absorb moisture. Or you can package it along with a desiccant, which is a silica gel that uh, a lot of pastry people get. And you just package it in a container with the desiccant. The desiccant will remove all the moisture and keep it crunchy. But that's what I would do if I was wanted a meringue that was totally stable because it doesn't require very much thinking or very much tweaking. And it, it works all the time, and I like it. Uh, okay, now, for the gummy bear, I wanted to uh, grind some uh, – wanted to grind some sage up fine along with tarragon or other herb add ground star anise or something like that and just a bit of water with high acyl gel in and or iota carrageenan now remember well, I'll finish. Once gelled, the gum would be cut in a few one by one by one centimeter cubes to be eaten whole with the prawn. Any advice on how to use the herb so that the gummy bear uh, really packs a punch of flavor? Which hydrocolloid should I use? Any problems with flavor release, temperature, or acidity to think about? Okay, so he- here's here's the deal. So. Uh, so high, there's two kinds of gelan uh, for those of you who don't. And gelan is one of these gelling agents, newer age gelling agents. It's a micro, it's natural, but it's you know derived uh, from microbial fermentation. There's high acyl gelan and low acyl gelan. Low acyl gelan is brittle, like agar, and it uh, and it you know it's brittle. There you have it. Uh, uh, high acyl gelan is very elastic. I do not enjoy uh, straight up high acyl gelan preparations because they're extremely rubbery. They don't really uh, imitate um, they don't really imitate gummy bears. Uh, and the other one you mentioned, iota carrageenan, also. So iota carrageenan, kappa carrageenan, two most common carrageenans people use. Kappa, brittle, like agar. In fact, it's very closely related to agar. And iota, which is elastic and stretchy. Also, I mean, iota, typically when you're using it, you're using it in low concentrations for things like puddings because it allows you to uh, shear it and then have it reset up into a gel. That's a kind of its unique property along with uh, reacting uh, very nicely with milk. But neither of those two things alone are going to impart a real uh, gummy bear texture. Why not just use gelatin? Gelatin is amazing, has great flavor release, uh, and you know there's a lot of recipes out there for you know how to do high gelatin preparations for real gummy bear. Because remember, the hallmark of a gummy you like gummy bears, right, Sus? Uh-huh. A real hallmark. A gu- a, they should be hard, right? They're hard. Yeah, what do you? Mean? They're physically. You have to bite into them. Yeah. They don't just break apart like a marshmallow. You right. don't like marshmallows. Is it you that doesn't like marshmallows, or yeah, just doesn't made, care about them? I made marshmallows. I don't like. You like jet puffed, yeah? Store bought marshmallows. Yes. What is it you don't like about the handmade marshmallows again? I forget. Mm-hmm. Is it the idea, or is there something the about the texture? Sound of the scissors cutting it. The sound of the scissors cutting it. What if it was cut in a different room? Maybe. You think about the scissors, and then you're like, <laughs> yes. I can't enjoy this because I know that at some point it was cut with a scissor. Wow. All right. All right. I'm not gonna. I'm just gonna let that one stay. Um, so uh, the properties of a gummy bear that you're trying to get with a gummy are uh, that they are uh, cohesive, elastic, and hard. Okay, uh, and if you look on pat, there's a patent out right now of someone using a mixture of gelan and carrageenan, but not. Uh, I believe they're using low acyl, the brittle one. So the gelan's there to provide the hardness, and you can use gelan at fairly low proportions. This is only if you want to do a vegetarian gummy. Otherwise, I would just use gelatin. Uh, you, you know, gelan's going to provide the hardness, and the iota is going to provide. Or they don't use iota; they use a mixture of iota and. Um, 
and I believe new, which is a you – know, there's a billion different – not a billion, like eight – different carrageenans. But the you know new is one of the ones that you, we don't really use much. But they – in the patent literature, and you can look at it, it is – the inventors are Andrew J. Grazella and Neil Argo Morrison on a gelatin-free gummy confection comprising the combination of gelan gum and new carrageenan and or new iota carrageenan blend. So uh, the gelan is there for the hardness and the iota is there for the elastic uh, elasticity and the cohesiveness. And the recipe is actually there in the patent. So you can go look at it which is a good thing to do. But I recommend just using gelatin. Unless you don't want a gummy bear. Now, you're in France. A lot of people like, you know, the pectin texture, in which case just go high pectin. Nothing like in terms of very good flavor release and high concentrations, gelatin and pectin are the way to go. Gelan is good, but in high concentrations can get kind of weird. Um, and I've never done a super high concentration of like a high acyl, low acyl mix to try and imitate gelatin. But anyone out there with some advice, eh, we'll take it. Right? Mm-hmm. We'll take it. Okay. Uh, so I apologize for not answering that question for so long. Right? Right. Actually, uh, Stan had a really interesting idea that we've never done about uh, rotovaps. Stan was saying, uh, so different, uh, different flavors, right, have different kind of uh, solubilities in different mediums like alcohol or oil or blah, 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 right? So typically when we rotovap something, we rotovap the entire product to try and get as much flavor out of it as humanly possible, Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what? But what he's saying? Why not? Have you ever tried, uh, for instance, doing an oil extraction uh, of, of of something or an alcohol extraction versus a water extraction, and then rotovap those extractions without the product in it to try and separate different aspects of the flavor? Nope. <laughs> Good idea, though. You could try it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Uh, Mike writes in about lemongrass. Happy holidays to everyone at Cooking Issues. Oh, that's right. It's next week our last one before the holidays? Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. So n- next week is ho- – and by the way, for me, holiday means Christmas. So next week is the Christmas edition of Cooking Issues. Call in all of your you know, Christmas-related or holiday. Or n- Are we going to do one between Christmas and New Year's? I didn't know because I think New Year's falls on the day of – the next one after Christmas. Oh, it's on Tuesday? Mm-hmm. So next week, your last chance for two weeks, right? Is yeah. Christmas on a Tuesday? Yeah, uh, yeah. Something like that? Yeah. Oh, I just don't know anything. I can't believe the freaking year is over! I know. My God! By the way, we're doing our uh, holiday thing for the, the, the – there's a holiday – what do you call them? Like an ice cream social but without ice cream today for the – Booker and Dax, the equipment company, and Booker and Dax, the bar, are going to meet to ice skate in uh, at the Bryant Park. Should be fun, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mustache's like, no, it's not going to be fun. But you like ice skating. I do. I just don't like... I just don't like... Just doesn't like getting together with people. <laughs> Those people... Oh, how like, I hate like people. company softball games and all that. I'm just not... You've been pestering me about having a company Christmas party. Yeah, now I'm, I'm actually getting... that. Like a Christmas party where you drink. Oh, I'm sure the bartenders are going to show up. They will bring liquor. I highly doubt it. They'll already be wasted and start skating. I told Tristan to bring that some hot be, drinks. I think it's alcohol. Uh, it's uh, illegal. But. Oh, okay. Well, yes, yes. It's technically okay. Sorry, we we're, we got Mike with his lemongrass. Hello, happy happy holidays. Which is how we got into this nonsense. Happy holidays to everyone at Cooking Issues. I hate mincing lemongrass by hand, and who doesn't? Nastasha hates lemongrass. Guess why? Guess why, people? You can't because you're not here with me. Because it grew in her backyard, and it goes back to her hatred of everything from her childhood. It's just not true. Well, why do you hate yeah, it? Then? I, I used to like. Like play with it and smell it, and like now I feel nauseated when I think about it. 
Nastasha, what I love about her is that she properly uses nauseated instead of. <laughs> you get very angry. I do get angry about that one, but the but like but, but, but it's true or false? You hate you, like everyone else. Like we is had like, a tangerine tree and a pomegranate tree. I like all those things. The lemongrass, I used to play with it so much. You know what I used to play with because we didn't have that stuff because I lived you know in the East in Coast here. What in Jersey? Yeah, you know you know so you know. Sewage. Kind of. Onion grass. I used to rip up onion grass and smell the onion grass mm. constantly, mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. But I still love myself some onions. <laughs> anyway, whatever. Uh, Mike hates mix- mincing lemongrass by hand. A few cookbooks recommend against using a food processor given that the blades create friction uh, and therefore heat and that this damages the flavor of the lemongrass. Any thoughts on this given that lemongrass is going to be heated at a later point? Should this even matter to me? Thanks, Mike. I do not think that should matter to you, Mike. I think that's a load of, a load of horse hockey. I, 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 look, I'm willing, to, I'm willing to have my butt handed to me on this one, but uh, I don't think it's a problem. I think like the reason I wouldn't use it is that food processor isn't that good at breaking up lemongrass properly, and I detest the long... Uh, uh, like I'm sure Nastasha hates this even more than I do is the long fibery craps from an in, in, inappropriately processed lemongrass, right? Yeah. So I mean, like if you mince it by hand across, you know, across ways, you're guaranteed to not have any long fibers, which is good. Um, so I mean, I think it's less about the friction or the heat, especially if you're going to heat it later, and because there's not that much heat in a typical food processor. Now you can get a good bit of heat in a Vita Prep or something like that, but I think it's more about the uh, about the length of the fibers. You don't want any long nasty fibers. But I detest the texture of um, kind of cellulosic and you know lignified fibers in my food. You know, unless I'm chewing on sugar cane and then I chew on it for some reason because I have a mental problem until my gums bleed. You ever do that? Yeah. Yeah, it's terrible, right? Mm-hmm. It's horrible. Mm-hmm. Which is why instead of using sugarcane in a drink, consider saving the cores from pineapples and vacuum infusing some sugar into the core of a pineapple and using that instead of the typical sugarcane garnish. I need to get our sugarcane press back out to use at the bar. They'll never do it at the bar. But that'd be awesome. I, do you like sugarcane drinks? Mm-hmm. Like fresh sugarcane juice? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. What's the, I forget the word for it in uh, Portuguese. But I love that stuff. Uh, yeah, look for it eventually. Eventually, we'll do it someday. Someday, anyway. So uh, there you go, Mike. And with that, uh, Joe, should we take our first commercial break? Coming right back at you with more cooking issues. Your computer is so slow, I can't even use this thing. Yeah, I should probably get a new one. Do you have any suggestions? Oh, totally, man. You should go to TechServe. Okay, what's so good about TechServe? Well, they've got this awesome new insider program that's free when you get a new Mac with Apple Care. 
So you should buy your computer there because you get 50% off data transfer, free loaner computers, front-of-the-line repair privileges, an annual Mac tune-up service, backup consultation and setup, seminars, and much more. Okay, yeah, where's TechServe? It's at uh, 119 West 23rd Street in New York City. They're New York's premier authorized Apple reseller and service provider. And you should totally check out TechServe.com for more information. All right, that settles it. I'm headed to TechServe. Man. Your computer just got called out. Your computer's busted. Your computer's a flying sack. Yeah, can you believe that was all improv? <laughs> <laughs> and Joe has not made it over to TechServe yet, so his computer still is a steaming pile of uh, of uh, horse of uh, you know poop. <laughs> True. Uh, are you you're allowed to say poop on the air, right? I think that there's no regulations against poop. Yeah, I mean, even if we were on the real air, I think I could say poop. Anyway, uh, Matt writes in about lemon juice. Here's a word I'm not going to use. On the uh, on the on the air, uh, listen, Matt. I'm going to editorialize a little bit. Uh, come up with a good word, schmutz. How about schmutz? Matt used a much much worse. In fact, I think one of the worst words in the English language when you think about it. Right? Dave had to explain this word to me three years ago. Yeah, rhymes rhymes with Greg and egg. I'm not going to go into it. Anyway, uh, schmutz. Uh, I just got done center- centrifuging some lemon and lime juice. I started with fresh juice uh, juice treated with Pectinex. I let it sit for a few hours and make a loose gel with agar. Uh, then I broke the gel up and spun it at 4,000 RPM, uh, which I'm assuming if you use a similar centrifuge to mine is also roughly 4,000 uh, Gs. Uh, the lime turned out perfect, but the lemon had a scum. There you go. Scum's a good one. Floating on the surface. Though I was able to remove it with a coffee filter. See below. I had the same thing happen with peach juice a few months back. From what I can see, it appears to be some kind of oil or grease. The question is, what is that scum, and is there a way to avoid it? Thanks, Matt. Uh, well, it depends. There's a couple things that can be floating on the top of the centrifuge. First of all, uh, I would recommend you change your um, your the way that you do lemon and lime juice. You should lemon and lime juice. I would not set with an agar. Uh, Nastasha's least fond memories uh, are trying to spin agar gels in uh, the centrifuge. Are these your least fond? Never want to do it. What do you hate more? Ever. What's the worst? That we or did like grapefruit? How many tons of? I don't know for that for the. For, oh my god, it was horrible. But no, but what was your least favorite? Is that your least favorite task? task? Yeah, yeah. Really? I think of so. all. Uh, let me think about it while you're talking. All right. Okay. So, um, so anyway, that's not the way to do it. Go uh, buy Kiesel Sol, which is suspended silica uh, sol from the um, from the what's it called homebrew shop and Kytosan, C H uh, Kytosan, uh, also from a homebrew shop. These are wine finding agents, right? Then you add two for every liter of lime juice or lemon juice. Add two um, two milliliters of the SPL and also two milliliters. Be accurate. Of the Kiesel Sol, stir it, let it sit 15 minutes, add 2 milliliters of Kytosan, stir, also be accurate, 15 minutes, then uh, 2 more milliliters, uh, Kiesel Sol, again, stir it up, spin it, you'll be good every time. That's just the, that's the way to do uh, lemon juice or lime juice. Uh, that's what we do at the bar, and it never fails. Uh, okay, now to your other problem, stuff floating on top. There are two things that can be going on. Sometimes you spin something that has some fat in it. Uh, in which case it floats up to the top. Sometimes you uh, have some fat contaminating your buckets if you spin directly in the buckets as I do, in which case it floats on top. More often than not, what's floating on the top looks like fat but isn't is a floated layer of stuff and it could be broken up cell stuff, which is phosphorus. But I doubt it. I doubt it. It could be some fat. I doubt it. Anyway, air. So what happens is when you blend something, 
or when you stir it or whisk it, you get air bubbles. And believe it or not, even under the force of 4,000 times the force of gravity, air bubbles don't necessarily pop. And so you have a layer of stuff floating at the top of, uh, of a lot of things after they spin, even if they don't have fat in them. And the way to get around that is to do a quick vacuum cycle to de-aerate the product before you spin it. And if you do that... Uh, Pretty much, you'll get crystal clear stuff on the top from the from the get go. Certain things um, are more apt to to throw a, a thing on the top than others. Tomatoes typically will have a layer floating on the top. Uh, if you vacuum them, they won't. Um, certain things you can't get around it, like coconuts, have a lot of fat in them, and so if you blend those and don't get the air out, you get a mat, a thick mat floating on the top, which actually tastes good. Tastes good. Uh, but anyway, so that is my uh, that is my theory, and um, that's that's what's going on. That's how to avoid it. Uh, remember that – what were we spinning that time that was crazy? Oh, no. Also, when you're going to put stuff in a rotovap, if you don't want it to boil over after you blend it, you, you, you put it in a vacuum machine, chamber vacuum machine. You de-aerate it. That's just you know standard procedure, but a lot of people don't, don't do it. And then when they run the rotovap for the first time, it sprays all over the inside of the machine. Do you remember that time we had to de-aerate all of that uh, – was it the habanero that almost killed us when we de-aerated or was it the horseradish? I think it was the horseradish. Oh, my God. Yeah, that sucked. Lots of – Horrible times. <laughs> Every day with Dave is a horrible day. Uh, right? No. Pretty well. No, just most. Just most. <laughs> Back then, when we did everything ourselves, we were in the school and we <laughs> were working out of a trash room. I mean, it's like a hundred by hundred square foot, and it was like a billion. It was a billion degree. Now, people, Nastasia, Nastasia hates uh, me. F- for a number of reasons, but one that she detests more than any other is the fact that I am an insensate brute and yes. that my body doesn't care what kind of temperature it's put in. Whether you, you could freeze me out, you could burn me, you could light my hands on fire. It just doesn't seem to bother me that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for some reason, uh, th- this uh, is in uh, Nastasha's playbook uh, a hallmark of a poor, <laughs> a, a, a poor person, a, a low quality individual, uh, as we like to say. Uh, and uh, I, can, you know, I can't help it. Things don't bother me. But that trash room averaged. Uh, like 115 degrees because we were in the same room as the refrigeration units. I'm talking like all year, 115 degrees in that son of a gun. And here's the thing about me. Like I don't mind any temperature if I'm working, but if I'm (laughs) sitting in a trash room sweating into a keyboard, I want to kill everybody. Everybody, right? I mean I could be outside in that weather working if I was working, if I was doing something or cooking in a million degree, but I don't care. You know what I mean? Like, you know. uh, Those were legitimate temperature readings, like 115. Remember that? Oh, yeah. No, remember we like when we got those new thermometers, we were like, come on. And then we like we calibrated them and we're like, no, it's really like it's 115 degrees in here. And let me tell you something. It wasn't like 115 Arizona style, which is still piss hot. Because I've been to Arizona where they're like, hey, you know, 100 degrees is legitimately not that hot in Arizona. It really isn't. You can go outside in 100 degree weather and it's fine. You know what I mean? Because it's so freaking dry. Because it's not the heat, it's the humidity. But listen, at 115 degrees, people, it is hot. Now, in New York, it's 115 sweet, humid degrees inside of that trash box. Man, that sucked. Remember that? We're sitting there spinning agar gels and oh my God. Anyway. Good times, good times. And that was back, remember when, but my favorite part about it was, I remember there was someone who wrote an internet uh, article back when we were still doing the blog. We're going to get that fixed again, right? (laughs) Jerry, the Christmas break, yeah. Yeah, Christmas break, we're going to get that fixed again. Back when we were going full bore on the blog, uh, which we hope to again someday, I'm going to get Piper to write for it, I think. 
Yeah. Anyway, uh, when we were doing that, I had a guy say, well, I don't have all of like the awesome resources that Dave has. And Nastasha and I read this, and we burst out. We burst out laughing, right? We were laughing for like 20 minutes straight in a 115-degree hot box with stuff. Everything is taped together with duct tape. Listen, I'm happy with, I'm happy with everything. We, I'm, I'm totally happy. So this is not like, oh, poor little Rick. You know what I mean? But, but like the fact of the matter is, is that everything we own is held together with duct tape. <laughs> right? Yes. The phone was duct taped to the wall. The phone was duct taped to the wall. <laughs> That's my goal. My New Year's resolution, people, is to not be the guy whose box is duct taped together when he shows up to the party. <laughs> You get a new box. Uh, Chip writes in about Calustians. Nastasha, Dave, Jack, and Joe. Well, crap on Jack because he doesn't like us anymore. He's not showing up to the show. Just kidding. He, I love Jack. Everyone loves Jack, right? Mm-hmm. Even though he insulted Joe's computer and I take umbrage. <laughs> yes. uh, have you been to Calustians recently? Uh, Calustians, by the way, for those of you that don't uh, haven't been in New York, uh, Calustians is kind of a well-known and amazing kind of spice and ingredient shop. Um I guess it started out as having a lot of uh, you know, Indian and that kind of you know, subcontinent style ingredients, um, and but now has just ingredients from everywhere all over the world. And chefs regularly make pilgrimages to Calustians to kind of just browse the aisles and see uh, kind of what exists or what's something they haven't used before. And you can buy them in fairly small uh, packages. A similar store for those of you – it's on the, it's in the 20s uh, on Lexington Avenue here in, in Manhattan. There's a, another store – uh, called Dual Specialty Shop, which is dumb and name for no offense if anyone no one's ever listening. But the, the Dual Specialty Shop is a really dumb name. It's over on First Avenue, I think, over downtown in the East Village, and they have um, they're not as big, but they have a lot of interesting ingredients as well. So people go there uh, searching for ingredients for bitters, for cooking, whatnot. Anyway, so that's what Calustians is, um, and you know, great great place. Uh, I went in for some spices and noticed they have a large selection of modern ingredients. Uh, they are not listed in the website, so you have to actually go there to. Verify. Sorry. By the way, Calusian's website, one of the world's worst websites. It's a horrible website. Horrible. No offense. Crap. It's crap. Horrible. It's impossible to search for things on their website. Anyway. Um, uh, anyway, just a few that I remember them having are Kappa and Iota Carrageenan, Ultra Crisp, Ultra Crisp from National Starch Corporation. National Starch. I wish anyone would have a name as good as National Starch. National Starch. Um... And maltodextrin. Now, but the question is what kind? See, one of the problems with Calustians is when they're bagging stuff like that, they don't necessarily write the provenance of the material on it. So you don't know exactly what it is. That's one of the issues. Anyway, but there are probably two shelving units full of these ingredients. So it is nice if you're in a pinch. Most were in the one ounce or two ounce bags. Uh, so g- good tip. Uh, I did know that, but I haven't mentioned it on air as a place you can walk in and get stuff. So it- it's good. Good. I don't think dual specialty has those kind of ingredients. So you're going to go to Calusians for that kind of thing. I also wanted to send you a picture of the turkey I did this year. I saw it. You can't see it because you're listening on the radio, but it's a nice looking turkey. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Looked good to me. Anyway, uh, in the smoker for about 2.5 hours, wet. Do you, I like to mispronounce herb and call it herb. How does McGee say it? McGee? Yeah. I think he says herb. You think? Mm-hmm. Like herb the guy? Mm-hmm. Whenever I say herb, I think herb like a like her, herbie. By the way, Nastasha and I sit. This is what we actually do for a living. We don't work on anything. We sit around and watch the YouTube of Hermie the Elf getting his butt handed to him by the lead elf over and over. <laughs> both the original version and the full metal uh, jacket version. Uh, both of them. Uh, it's an all-time – look, Rankin Bass, it's crazy with all the weird like pagan weirdness that goes on. In the, but the, you got to love those shows. Mm-hmm. Anyway, back to, back to this. Uh 
uh, with uh, in a smoker for about 2.5 hours, a wet herb rub under the skin. Uh, there were only four of us, so it went with a traditional cooking method as well. Thanks for the great podcast. Chip, thank you, and thank you for your picture of your turkey, right? Mm-hmm. Turkeys. Okay. Uh, we have some questions in from the Twitter. Ellie Nasser writes in, three-bone prime rib for Christmas, cooked off sous vide. And the question is, off the bone? I'm going to wait, off the bone? 55C? Finish in a 550 oven for about 15, 20 minutes? Those are all questions. So here's the answer. And that's actually like a compact uh, Twitter question. Good. Compact Twitter question. Here's the thing. Uh, if you're going to do it, typically if you're going to actually cook one, what you'll do is you'll uh, cut it off the bone, sear around, and then some, this is what some people do. Then retie it back to the bone and cook it using the bone as a, uh, as a you know, kind of an insulator protectant. You don't need to do that if you're going to do it sous vide. I don't whether or not you pull the bone off is up to you, right? But typically, um, you okay. Now here's where I'm going to go against everything I've ever said. Just for easiness' sake, I would bag the sucker and cook it to 55, uh, 55 C. 55 is a good number. 55 C, 55 one, 55 two. Do nothing to it beforehand. Then this is where I'm going to sound crazy. Just like bag it in a zippy with some oil, uh, cook it off to 55. Let it cool down. Uh, you know, for quite a quite a while actually, and then throw it into your super hot oven for longer than fifteen to twenty minutes. I would do it until you get a nice, nice, super crisp crust. You like prime rib, right, Stas? Yeah. Stas, uh, what's your favorite part about prime rib? Uh, it smells like home. Oh, okay. Well, weird. Uh, I was going to say the crunchy outside parts that are overcooked mm. along with the inside that's rare. So you don't want to skimp on producing those crunchy burnt fat things on the outside. So I would say do a 55, let it cool down for a minute, and then a little bit longer in the oven at the super high temperature. When I did my turkey this year, I had it in there for uh, like an hour and a half in a pretty hot oven because I, I – but I had cooked it all the way through. So I wouldn't be afraid of overcooking the outside in a traditional way because we love it, that stuff. The one, the worst prime rib I ever did was when I cooked it sous vide all the way through and didn't finish enough on the outside, and it was too uniform in the middle. It was a horrible nightmare. You say we had a call? Yes. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, my name's Peter Bellastray. Um I live in Wisconsin, Milwaukee. I help run my family restaurant, and I just graduated from CIA about a year ago, and I'm looking to go back to school for food science and wondering if you could maybe give me, like, top five schools or just general advice on that. So, like, we, when you say food science, do you mean a- actual food science, like a Ph.D., or do you mean just kind of new techniques for use in restaurant? I think a combination of both. Yeah, I mean, mo- here's the thing. Most of the actual food science uh, places are focused on more in- industrial uh, industrial applications, and it's changing a little bit now, but the, the, the issue is is that there's very little money in worrying about problems that are only geared towards restaurants, in other words, to, to fund real scientific research. That's changing a little bit. I would look right. at, at the kind of Research Chefs Association if you're interested in uh, food science programs. I mean uh, I, I don't know who's currently – uh, the best. I mean, especially out where you are, I don't know what's currently the best. I mean, over here, I mean, obviously, Rutgers has a good program in food science because it's near where a lot of the flavor houses are. Um, you know, there's um, there's also uh, um, 
Cornell has an interesting food science program. Uh, you, you, you might you might want to look at, but I don't really know who's the best feeder for that kind of stuff. I mean, obviously, if you want to do wine or enology, Davis, you know, but I, I don't know kind of what the kind of programs that they have. The other thing is is that um, you know if you do some work in that, like maybe get a master's, that's you, you could then get a job being a. A, a chef or doing research work at a at a flavor house. We just met, you know, uh, a bunch of them, and they're kind of an, an interesting crew. Now, from a yeah. from a food from a food tech for restaurant stuff. I mean, obviously, you know, we we teach at the at the FCI. We teach uh, low temperature sous vide work that's geared at chefs. That's like two days in and out. It's not a food science class by any stretch. It's like a low temperature sous vide. Chris Young is uh, from Modernist Cuisine is starting up his program at uh, Johnson Wales. Um, but and you know Chris Chris Loss who's at uh, CIA is still doing some is doing some work with that too. But I don't know what kind of classes they offer. But it's all a question of what you're trying to do with it. Do you know what I mean? I don't know how much yeah. a food science uh, program is going to help in a restaurant unless you're just a lover of knowledge. In which case, go for it. You know what I mean? I mean that's I mean, that's yeah. what gets me up in the morning is just l- liking knowledge. So yeah, I mean, and that's kind of one of the reasons I want to go back. It's like I want to continue learning. You know, and with everything I learned from school. Now being able to apply it to my my family restaurant, I just I kind of want to continue that. I'm only 23, and I feel like I wouldn't really like going to school here isn't set in my mind. I, I still want to travel and like see things and learn things, so that's a part of it as well. Right. I mean, if if you get you know another thing you can do if you're interested in just like the 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 restaurant side of it. You know, and this is what a lot of people I know do. They go, they work for someone in the U.S. that they can get, you know, stage basically for someone who is doing this kind of work, right? Right. And then, uh, you know, so you know Wiley or you know uh, Grant or uh, you know Paul Lee Brandt, someone, you know what I mean? And then yeah. uh, after a while of staging there, they then get the recommendations to go work at like Noma or in Spain. And then, you know, they make the, the you know, they'll, they'll spend some while. So that's, you know, Fabulous, who's, you know, uh, works with us for a long time. That's what he, you know, he worked with us for a while, then worked uh, with Johnny Azzini uh, back when he was at Jean Georges for a long time, and then, you know, st- spent a long time staging at Noma and other places and traveled the world and has picked up, um, you know, if you're, if you're young and if you can, you know, if you can do it, if you can live that lifestyle is a good way to, to see what is current right now in kitchens, but you have to be willing to put your time in in each one of the kitchens for that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But, but it sounds like you're... And I mean, I guess that's kind of a fact I've been... I mean, I knew already, but I think I've been kind of faking to myself that it isn't. <laughs> um, but thank you. This was very helpful. And by the way, that last the trepidation you're showing is very smart. Like, if you, if you even think that you don't want to do that, then don't Send yourself down that road. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because if you send yourself down that road and you, and it starts, you start feeling like you know this wasn't the right move. It, it's a it's a long road to be halfway down and find out that it wasn't the road you wanted to be on. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Whereas yeah. you know if you're going to go take a program in a school like food science, you're learning all the time, and it's not the same. It's not the same sort. I don't think you'll feel the same sort of sense of crap if it's not the road you want to go down. Do you know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah. And I guess I guess that's what I still need to decide. <laughs> right. Cool. Well, uh well, good luck and I hope everything works out for you. All right, thank you very much. I <laughs> no problem. Um 
Okay, so uh, at at Clef's, I don't know at Clef's name because at Clef's name is written in um, Japanese characters that I don't understand on his on his or her. I don't know Twitter feed, uh, but you know uh, one of our Twitter buddies. Um, can melatonin be used as an antioxidant in food? Does it have any advantages? So melatonin uh, is you know a, a hormone that I guess is made in the in the pineal gland. And uh, it, you know it regulates uh, sleep patterns and a bunch of other things. It's a powerful, also antioxidant, uh, and it's sold as a dietary supplement here in the U.S. Um, but it's not. There's a strange rule in the U.S. and and here it is. It's that if I, I like the rules for selling you something that you put into your body as a dietary supplement are a lot less stringent than the rules uh, governing uh, what you put into food. And it like everything is everything is completely back buttward on this kind of stuff. For instance, also like it's like the same thing where, uh, well, not the same, but the irritating the way regulations work. You know, eugenol and isoeugenol, which is clove oil, uh, is <laughs> considered safe to eat, but is not approved to use as a fish anesthetic. That's the dumbest thing in the world. So when we use it, we have to say that it's a spice. Dumb. Anyway, but uh, the other side, and actually can be crazy, is that things that aren't on the GRAS, i.e., generally regarded as safe, which is the main list of things, can be used as dietary supplements. So you can buy melatonin as a uh, dietary supplement. And you could grind it up and add it to a beverage, but uh, there was a, a, a an energy drink manufacturer who was making a relaxation blah 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 that added doped it with melatonin, not just things that contained melatonin, but doped it with melatonin, and they got a warning letter uh, saying that you know um, you, you shouldn't do that. It was uh, the company was Innovative Beverage, uh, and they were, had these relaxation drinks that had melatonin, and it's not approved as a food additive. That that said. I mean, I don't see why technically it wouldn't work. I don't know what the stuff tastes like. Have you ever taken them? No. I mean, no. I've never taken it. I mean, the other thing is, you know, one thing to do, and I don't have time to, I didn't have time to do it before now, but like you could just buy some melatonin, grind it up, and add it to some stuff that usually turns nasty, like apple juice, and see whether or not it keeps the apple juice uh, from, you know, turning. But be aware that even though melatonin is passed fairly quickly in the, by the liver, uh, according to what I read, it's like a one pass through the liver and it's out. Uh, you might make people sleepy, sleepy time, right? Because it's supposed to be the relaxation thing. So if you want people, you know, passing out at your restaurant table, <laughs> you know. Anyway, so that's my that's my thing. But I but I do not I do not know, and I and I cannot. Uh, what's the word? Uh, advocate. Uh, okay. So uh, a couple things that uh, I'm uh, working on now. Uh, I sent out a Twitter question. Uh, where can we get pig bladders? Because Piper saw uh, Chef at Danielle use a pig bladder. Pig bladder uh, – and this – I started thinking about it again because we got a question, I don't know, about a month ago or a couple weeks ago about um, not using plastic bags for sous vide work. And so I was interested because there's an old kind of natural en papillot technique where you use a pig bladder to um, – to, to hold things in while you cook them. And so I was wondering whether or not you could use a pig bladder to do some kind of rudimentary low temp work. Um, now, the, I mean, the problem obviously is that pig bladders, uh, unlike plastic bags, are semi-permeable, i.e. things can travel in and, in and out of it. In fact, the whole notion of a semi-permeable membrane was discovered with uh, pig bladders by a guy named, uh, you know, 
Jean-Antoine Noyer, who's a physicist in the, in the 1700s. And uh, he, you know, he was the person who noticed um, that uh, pig bladders slowly pass things in and out. And there was other experiments afterwards that showed that certain uh, things can migrate across pig bladders. So the question is, if you were going to cook for lo- short periods of time, I think you could probably cook in a pig bladder without too much uh, flavor crossing back and forth or too much loss or too much kind of uh, the fact that it's poaching because the numbers that I read um, were that the, the transfer rate across pig bladder membranes is fairly slow. You could also probably coat the pig bladder in something that would reduce the permeability even more like Zane or something like that. But then it wouldn't – you know, then that's kind of a pain in the butt. But um, – I found a couple sources for pig bladders on the internets uh, thanks to uh, the folks on Twitter. We have two different sources of it that they sent in. So we're going to get ourselves some pig bladders, probably not before New Year, and we're going to do some low-temperature uh, pig bladder work. How does that sound? Sounds good. Sounds good. And uh, lastly, I'll, li- I'll leave with this. Uh, we're, we, uh, I'm going to do some more lobster experiments. So for those of you that follow my lobster, and Stas like, oh, crap, more lobster. <laughs> but the last time I did lobster uh, experiments, Stas, we, uh, I, did, I did it in my house. You didn't have to deal with it. Yeah, yeah, no, I, no, I'm not. Do you even like lobster? Yeah, it's okay. What's your favorite crustacean? Uh, um, I don't know. Keep you don't like crab, right? No. God damn it! Uh, uh, oh, ooh, didn't mean to curse. <laughs> crab is delicious. Uh, ooh, oysters. Oysters, oysters. Oyster. That's not a crustacean. Oh, that's a mollusk. Oh. You like oysters more than clams? Squid. Squid also a mollusk. Hmm. Then none. Okay, no shrimp. No crab. No. Lobster. No. If I have to, a lobster roll. Oh, Jesus. Okay, so uh, so anyway, so uh, I keep, uh, keep you guys posted. Soft-shell, soft-shell crab. It's good. Soft-shell crab is delicious. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've mentioned this on soft-shell crab, but uh, I love me some soft-shell crab. Do, do, you, do you ever prepare them? No. Do you know my favorite fact? I've told you this a million times. My favorite fact about soft-shell crabs? Because when you cut their eyes off, you have to cut their eyes off with, along with their brain. They bread themselves. So you cut their eyes off, you pull up the little tab in the back, you rip the gills out, you put it down, you throw it in the breading, and they bread themselves. That is consideration. That is a considerate foodstuff. Yeah? Well, anyway, well, uh, we'll fill you in on my lobster (laughs) test next time. Cooking issues! Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.